Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. I guess I would start our Bible study off tonight with a question, and the question would be, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Because you hear that all the time, don't we? The gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel. Some people say, hey, the gospel is good news. It's good news. It's the good news of Jesus. And, and, and I think about that. Well, in simplicity, the word gospel does mean good news, right? That's really in, it's in, in simplistic form. But what it is, it's much more than that. See, it's the message, guys, of forgiveness for sin through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's really what it is. And if we were to dig a little bit deeper, we would discover that it is more than just good news, right? Because we know what good news is. There are times when we go, hey, I've got some really good news, right? Hey, I found a sale over at Kohl's. It's really good news. You're going to get a good deal. And we're, we're, we're just stoked to herald the good news of a great sale or something we find. Or maybe the doctor says, I have some really good news. And the good news is, It's not cancer. But the gospel is even much, much deeper than that, guys. Think about it. The gospel message is essentially this. Listen, it's God's rescue plan for those who are stranded in sin. It's God's rescue plan for those who are stranded in sin. And listen, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus then the gospel allows us to be reconciled back to a holy God. You see, it's redemption and rescue in its purest form. The Apostle Paul, if you're taking note, in his first letter to the Corinthians, he lays out the content of the gospel message. Listen to this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. Here's what he says. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel, that's good news, he says, which I preach to you, which also you received in which you stand, okay? So the gospel is something we stand in. Now, remember, the gospel saves us, like, right? We just talked about this. It says the gospel is, is redemption in its purest form. It's rescue in its purest form, and, and it allows us to be reconciled to a holy God. But, but we need to understand that the gospel message is also something we need to stand in. We need to stand in. That's the gospel. It saves us. But Paul says, I preach to you which you received, which in which you stand, by which you also are saved. How, Paul, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul's kind of getting in the nitty gritty. Paul's saying, listen, this is how it goes. In verse 3, he says, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I received. Yes, Paul? Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, that's essential, okay? This past Sunday, we talked about about being buried, but we focused in on two key players. We focused in on Joseph of Arimathea, and we focused in on Nicodemus. Well, this coming Sunday, we're actually going to see the burial, what Paul says, the burial, and really what the significance means to you and I, the burial, Because it's much more than, yeah, Jesus died and he was buried. And Paul says, here's the scripture. Here's the gospel message. He said, Jesus Christ died for our sins. And we should give a hearty amen at that point. And that he was buried. And that he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be selling Resurrection Sunday. We're going to be celebrating that, guys. And it's much more than Easter, it's much more than eggs, it's much more than a bunny, it's much more than Easter basket, it is the resurrection. It's a funny story. On Monday, uh, I was sitting at, at, at my granddaughter's school ready to pick her up. Monday's my day that I get to hang out with her, and I decided to post something on Facebook, and all I posted was, I, po- I, I said, the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, amen. And then I got it, I got it, my friend's like, is that an April Fool's? So I was like, No! He says, well, it's not. Hey, he says, hold on. And we took it offline. And he's like, but, but mostly people say that on Easter. And I said, dude, every day is Easter for the Christian. Oh, yeah, I get it. Because isn't that the truth? Right? Alice, you've been to the tomb. It's empty. Hallelujah, right? It's empty. You walked in, you went, it's empty. And he's risen. And that's what he's saying. That's the gospel message, guys, that he rose again according to the scriptures. Now, 
if you're taking note, let's break this down a little bit because I want to show you, okay? Uh, okay, there are, there are three important essential elements to the gospel. Ready? Number one, jot this down. Christ died for our sins. That's number one. Notice, guys, that we were taken, if you will, just like Lot. You go, I wasn't taken anywhere. What are you talking about? Well, here's the thing. When we were born, we were born into bondage and we were born into slavery and we needed divine rescue. And really, that's the message. That's the message we should be preaching with our lives. That's the message we should be sharing is that there are people still stranded in sin that need divine rescue. The problem is, is they're blind and they don't see it. Now, me and God, we're okay. Guys, 17 years old, 17 year old. Listen, the, the gospel is being told to me, and I say, God, if I'm good, I'll go to heaven. And if I'm bad, I'll go to hell. You decide. And that's, I was still blind. I was still, guys, I was still in bondage, and that was me. And I just thank the good Lord that he didn't say, okay, that's how you want it, Ben? Good luck. He's, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep pursuing you because i got a plan for you. And I saw that, and I saw the gospel, and they said, Jesus Christ died for us. Now, I know you guys know this. I know you know this, but it doesn't hurt to go over them, right? Why? Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to grasp that. We need to grasp that. Why is that important? Because when dealing with people, the Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned. How many is in all? Everybody. Everybody. Does that mean me? Here's our problem. Stay with me. See if you, see if you can track with me, okay? See if you can track with me. Sometimes when we walk with Jesus a little bit, like, like a few years, five years, six years, ten years, sometimes when we walk with Jesus like this, we somehow think we don't sin anymore. We somehow think, I've got this, Lord. Yeah. Now you're a sinner. You messed up. The Bible says what? All have sinned. We're, we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And you go, Ben, what does that mean? Here's what it really means, guys. The reality of sin needs to be acknowledged by all who approach the throne of salvation of grace. We all have to You go, what do you mean? In other words, a person like you and I must acknowledge his hopeless guilt before God and in need of a divine Savior. We have to acknowledge, oh, Lord, I can't get to heaven without you. I can't. Lord, I just, I just, look at this. I acknowledge, guys, I'm hopeless without you, God. I'm hopeless without you. And you go, why? Here's why. Romans 6 and 23, very important verse. Paul, in, in writing to the Romans, says this, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Paul reminds us, the gospel message, he says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we understand. We understand, right? All of sin. Can I get an Amen. The wages of sin is death. Now we got a problem. Now we got a major problem. Why? What am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with my sin? I've got guilt. Hey, man, what's that behind your back? My, my sin, my guilt. Actually, if it's the truth, we're like this because we're carrying that everything we do. And so we realize that, but we know that Christ died for our sins. Okay? Number two, number two, the, the second element in, that's essential in the gospel is the person in the work of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation. You go, what do you mean? Jot this down. He was both God and man. He was both God and man. Here's what I want you to think about. Jesus, my Jesus, lived a sinless life that we could never live. He lived that life according to 1 Peter 2.22. And because he lived that way, he's the only one who could die as a substitute death for you and I. You guys tracking with me? We have to acknowledge, okay, Jesus died for sins. Amen. We have to realize that Jesus is the only one. Now, you'll hear people say this. There are many ways, there are many roads to heaven. Jesus can't be the only way. Nobody else lived a perfect, sinless life but the God-man Jesus. That is so key. That is so key. 
And so we realize that that's the only way, guys, that's, that's, that his work, the person and work of Yahshua, of Jesus, is absolutely necessary to be saved. To be saved. How'd you get saved? Well, I've been a good person all my life, you know, grew up in a religious home, didn't smoke, didn't chew, didn't go with girls who do, you know, I'm, that's, that's how I got saved. No, 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 no. I know I got saved. I gave my life to Jesus. I put my faith and trust in Him and Him alone. And I can rest tonight, guys, because when He looks down, He sees Jesus, not me. I know this is going to shock you all, but I mess up. I'm a sinner. <gasps> you are? Yeah. Man. Number three, jot this down. The resurrection of Jesus is an essential element for the gospel, the resurrection. You go, how so, man? Because this, listen, the resurrection is proof of the power of God. Proof of the power of God. And you go, okay, okay, okay. So, so the res- Jesus dies, okay? Jesus dies for our sin. He goes in the grave. And the third day, he's alive again. That's proof that, right? That's proof of the power of God. What does that mean to me? What does that mean to me? Okay, well, you can jot these down. I'm going to give you just a little bit, and then we're going to move pretty quick. What does the resurrection mean to me? First and foremost, it assures our future resurrection. That's what it does. Because Jesus both died and rose again, we will be raised like him. Aren't you excited for that? Aren't you excited? I am. I've already put in my order for my future body. Just want you to know. Y'all won't recognize me in heaven. Okay, I'm just saying. Six foot one. Right? I'm going to be just a little bit taller. So you'd be like, is that Ben? Hey, how's it going? Right? I've already got it in because I'm going to be resurrected just like him. And I love the fact that I'm going to have a supernatural body and be able to walk through walls. Hi. Bye. Boom. I'm out of here, right? That's what I'm going to be. Right? That's, 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 that's amazing. Number two, what is the resurrection? It, it, the resurrection of Jesus is proof, guys, that there will be a future judgment. What? Judgment. Here's the thing that we forget. We forget that Christians are going to be judged just like, like everybody else. Oh, we're not going to be judged whether we go to heaven or hell. We're already saved, but we're going to be judged. Now, listen to this. Ready? This will, guys, this will keep you quiet the rest of the night. What's that? We're going to be judged on every idle word that we say. Every word. Okay, that's it. How you doing? Mm, 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 mm. I'm not going to say nothing. Why? Because we're going to be judged on that. But more importantly, guys, we're going to be judged with the true intent of our heart to serve Jesus. Because God sees. Other men don't see. God sees. Oh, look at the true intent. He wants to serve. This man loves me. He loves me. He wants to serve me. He wants to serve. Oh, look at that God. And we're going to stand before God. And he's going to judge us. Okay, all the things we did. Shouldn't we live with eternity in mind that way? Shouldn't everything we do have an eternal, right? And a, a, a conscious, eternal effort, shouldn't we do when we preach, when we teach, when we love, when we help out, when we have somebody, when we go to Starbucks? It's eternal. Why? Because that's really what it's about. God says, you're my servant. Did you do what I asked you to do? Oh, okay, Lord, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, Ben, why is that important? Listen, listen, church. Because today in our society, guys, we, we live in a world, guys, where justice is often perverted and neglected. Okay? We look at things that happen and we go, oh, my goodness, how could this be? How could this happen? The resurrection of Jesus means, among other things, that God's justice will ultimately prevail. And here's what I like. The resurrection, you know what it means to me? It means the Christian or the, or the resurrection of Christ gives us power to live the Christian life. Power. That's what it means. Okay? Story? Here's the problem. The problem is you go, hey, hey, you want to get saved? Give your life to you. Come up and pray this prayer. Amen. Somebody comes up and says, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Let me be my God's Savior. Amen. And then they walk out the door, but they don't have the resurrection power to live the Christian life. They think they got to try to live it on your own. How do you know, Ben? I'm proof positive. When I got saved at 17, I thought I had to be this model perfect Christian. 
And about two weeks in, I'm going, God, I can't do this. I can't live the Christian life. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I didn't hear you. And God says, dude, you got it all wrong. I'm going to live the life through you. It's not you. But that's the mindset we have. We have the mindset of, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say all the right things. I'm going to do all the right things. I'm going to smile all at the right time. And I'm going to be the perfect Christian. And two weeks in, boom. Now, some of you go, two weeks, man. It took me one day, (laughs) one day. But here's what I love. I love that, that the resurrection of Christ gives us the power to live the Christian life. And then these guys are the essential elements of the gospel. The sin of men and the death of my Jesus on the cross to pay for those sins. The resurrection to provide, what? Everlasting life for those who will follow him. And then he says in Romans, right, it's the free gift to all who will believe. You go, what does it mean? It means that, that Jesus Christ left heaven, came down to rescue mankind, of which we're proof. We're proof. Why? If you are not rescued, if you're not here, if you don't, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus or you desire a relationship with Jesus, it's a beautiful night. You should be at the golf course. If you have no idea and you have no belief and you go, God, I don't know about you. I don't even, you should, you're not, but you're here. Why? Because you realize, you realize that he's given you that free gift and that he's come and he's rescued you. And here you come and you lift up your hands and you praise the Lord. Not because, again, not anything else, but because you love Jesus and you understand you've been rescued and you understand what you've been rescued from. You understand it. You get it. It's in your heart. And then all of a sudden, everything starts to make sense. Everything starts to illuminate. You're like, wow, 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 this is true. This is true. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Ben, 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 what does a brief Bible study on the gospel have to do with Lot and Abram? Well, here's my thought. Listen, I believe that God was communicating through the word of God the gospel message that would come almost 4,000 years later. He was already showing us in chapter 14 the redeeming power. The essential elements, guys, are present in our story today. So here's where we're going tonight. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. Now, here's what I want you to do. As we look at Genesis, we're going to talk about being taken captive, stranded in sin, being a slave to sin until Jesus sets us free. We're going to talk about that, but you're going to see it in the storyline of Lot. Last week, Last week, let me catch you up to speed. We learned about God's wonderful affirmation after Lot separated from Abram. Look at verse 14 with me of chapter 13 real quick. It says, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And then in verse 18, So then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the Timorous tree of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built an altar to the Lord. So Abram broke camp. He continued to claim, this is what God has given me. This is what God has given me. Pick up my tent. This is what God has given me. Where is Lot? Lot's left. Lot's left. Where's Lot? He's headed towards Sodom. We know he's pitched his tent towards Sodom. The scene changes back to Lot. And we will see a lot of Lot in the next few weeks, okay? There's going to be a lot of Lot. Now, if you're taking note, here's what I want you to jot down on the top of your list. This is the message I'm calling the gospel according to Lot. The gospel according to Lot. Picking up our story in verse 1 of chapter 14. Notice with me. Now, I'm probably going to butcher a lot of these guys' names, so don't hold it against me. But um, we're just going to try to get through this. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar... Arioch, the king of Elisar, we'll call this guy Ched, the king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of nations, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Sinab, the king of Admath, Shimmer, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedalomir, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Everybody see that one through four? 
So now it begins, okay? So that's where we end up with Lot. Now you have four kings, guys, making war against five kings. And I want you to picture this in the area of the Dead Sea. In the area of the Dead Sea. That's where they are. And you go, well, who are these four kings and where they're from? Well, the four kings that are coming down, they're really coming from the area, just to make it easier, is the area of Babylon, okay? Babylon is in modern-day Iraq, so they're going to be coming up from that, actually, where Abraham was from, but you have four kings, okay? And they're going to go against five kings, and you go, who are there? Well, how do you know it's Babylon? Well, Shinar, guys, in the Hebrew is Babylonia, and Elisar is northern Mesopotamia. Elam is the area that's later known as Persia, which is where we get Iraq. Okay, so you have uh, you have Iran and I'm sorry, Iraq, Iran, Mesopotamia, and then you have Tidal. He says he just calls himself King of Nations. Okay, and that's not because he's prideful. He's like, hey, I'm not even going to be king of somebody. I'm going to be king of all the nations. It's just that he's, his, his clan hasn't set up a kingdom anywhere. So he just says, I'm titled king of the nations. Everybody got that? And so what happens, if you go to Israel today, they found a gate called Abraham's Gate, way up in northern Israel. And this would have been the gate that these four kings would have come through when, basically, and the one that Abraham would go to rescue Lot. If you, I think uh, we have a picture I want to show you real quick. Uh, you see this gate right here? Check it out. This is the actual gate that the four kings would have come through right here, guys. These are steps that go up. Now, don't look at the top part. They just kind of covered that as, as the archaeological. They just covered it to keep it from the elements. But this is the actual gate. This is known as Abraham's gate. This is it. This is so significant. Why? Well, number one, it proves that the Bible's true. It proves the Bible's true. Number two, it's Abraham's gate. It's like, no way. Now, again, think about that. I want you to etch that in your mind. This is, this is true. Now, here's what they would have come. They would have come, and they would have just come through this very gate. Now, think of this gate as we go on in our study. So, you have, what, five kings that dwell in the region of the Dead Sea. Your attention, please. Every time we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think those are the only two cities down at the bottom of the Dead Sea. But there was five of them. There was actually five. And if you were to draw a map of the Dead Sea, you would see that there was a couple. Well, first of all, you have Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? You have Adma, Zoim, and then you go to Bela, which is Zoar, which is very bottom. So you had five cities there. The Bible says that, that what? That Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were just, were just, they were just going crazy. We're going to see that in chapter 19. Ugh. Not good, not good, lot like our world, but think about it. This is what's kind of going on, right? So you have these five cities, and all these, what, the, all of these join together at the Valley of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Does anybody know what the Salt Sea is? That's the Dead Sea. So you know that that's, so if you ever hear someone go, hey, what's the Salt Sea? It's the Dead Sea. Both of them are the same thing. You go, why is it dead? Because there's a bunch of salt. You can't live in there. Let me tell you something about the Dead Sea. If you ever get in the Dead Sea, you float. There's so much salt content that first and foremost, if you get in the Dead Sea and you have a scratch somewhere you didn't know about, you'll know about it. Oh, oh, where did that? Oh, oh, wow, there's a scratch. That hurts. It's right away. Boom. But then if you just lay back, which a lot of people freak out on because they're like, no, it's water because it is water, but it's so full of salt. If you just lay back, you'll float. The problem is, is that you can only be in there for about 10 or 15 minutes at the max because that salt just sucks everything out of you and then you have to put on lotion and you have to. Did you float in the Dead Sea? Awesome. Yeah, that was so cool. That was so So Alice knows and those, those the only ones who went with us so far. Where's, where's Adam and Tiffany? They, should, they would know this. Okay. So anyways, so that's kind of where they are. Okay. Now notice verse four, guys. It says, 12 years they served Ched Olomir. And the 13th year, they rebelled. Do you guys see that? So let me give you just a summary. Four powerful eastern kings invade the Jordan Valley near the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, defeating all the forces in its region. We'll see that in a couple of verses. They were plundering the five Jordanian kings. Okay, we're going to talk about them. And they end up taking Lot captive. They end up taking Lot captive. Okay? So that's kind of what's going down. Now, here's what we 
need to understand. Look at verse 4 again. It says, 12 years they served Ched, King Ched, if you will. And it says, in the 13th year they rebelled. How many of you know that when you look at a number in Scripture, you kind of go, what does that mean? What does that mean, 13? Is that what number? It's really significant. Let me give you some... Let me give you some um, Let me, let me just give you some information, see what you want to do with it, okay? So, so let's chat. I want to chat for just a moment. If you're a note taker, guys, circle the word 13 right there. Why? Because I want you to write this down next to it. You ready? This is the first time it's mentioned in the Bible, 13. This is the first time. And any time you see something mentioned the first time, this is pretty much how it's going to be used. It's called expositional constancy. This is how it's going to be used throughout the scripture. So whenever you see something mentioned for the first, you go, okay, so how is it mentioned? So now you got to see context. You go, what's the context? Okay. In the context, guess what it is? It's rebellion, right? Notice, and the 13th year, they rebelled. So 13 in rebellion is always some sort of, I mean, 13 in context seems always some sort of rebellion. You're like, okay, well, give me, give me, some, uh, give me some examples. Okay, let me give you these. You can jot them down. I'll read them, but you can study them later, okay? Genesis 17 and 25 says this, And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. You go, who was that? If you recall, Ishmael was Abraham's son. Okay? God promised Abraham and Sarah a son, and they tried to help God out. Can I get an amen? You know know what we do? God, you gave me this promise, but let me help you out. So, So think about this, guys. So Ishmael is born... That's not God's way. That's not God's promise. And you won't realize, here's the thing you don't understand. God had stopped speaking to Abraham for 13 13 years. 13 years. And in verse 25, it says, when Ishmael was 13, and then God says, Abraham, that's not not the promised child. Let's, let's Let's say my Bible students. Ishmael is who today? Who said that? Arabs. That's right. God promised them land too. They're part of God's kingdom. They don't know him as God. But the one thing we got to remember, guys, is Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned. And we need to realize is that, is that people, God loves people. And so this is, this is where it is. Abraham, were you, were you trying to help God out? Were you rebelling? I don't know, but we know that 13, this is where Ishmael was 13 before he spoke again, and then Isaac was born. Jot this down, 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. So he finished all his house. So Solomon took 13 years. Solomon was supposed to what? He was supposed to build the house of God, and it says, but Solomon took 13 years to build his house. He had finished his house first before the temple of God, Kings tells us. Let me give you this one, guys. Jeremiah 25 and 3, it says, From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord had come to me, and I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, and you have not listened. So for 13 years, right, the, in, from the 13th year of, of Josiah the son all the way, what is Jeremiah saying? He's been, I've been preaching and preaching, and y'all are not listening. So somewhere in the line, it deals with what? It deals with rebellion or disobedience or disobedience. And so 13, again, 13 has, is a very significant number. Now, for the sake of time in communion tonight, we can't go much deeper than that. So let me take you back to Genesis chapter five or 14, looking it up in verse 5. It says, In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked Rephaim and Ashtaroth in Carnaim and Zuzim in Ham, the Emim and Shava in the Karathim and the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, 
which is by the wilderness. They turned back and came to in, in Mishput, that is Kadesh, and attacked the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazion Tamar. So all verse chapter 14, verse 5 and 7 is saying, man, these, these kings, they came down and they're, they're just taking people. They're just, they're just plundering people and they're winning the victory, guys. This is all out war, okay? So they've come through this gate... They've come through, and they're just going boom, boom. The Amalekites, they're just, they're just running over people, okay? So they come through Abraham's gates, through the Jordan Valley. Guys, listen, they're plundering all those who stood in their way. That's what they're doing. You go, well, Ben, how does that apply to our lives? Well, in reference to our lives, here's what I want you to think. Put your thinking caps on. Who do we know that wants to destroy and plunder us spiritually? Who do we know? Well, it's not the five kings. But really, who is it? Well, let me give you three. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three things in our world that want to destroy us. As a matter of fact, John, in writing 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, says, Do not love the world, church, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievement and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from this world. What's he saying? He's saying, guys, when you love the world, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says these three things. But we also know this. In John chapter 10, verse 10, in in 10a, it says, the thief, the devil, comes to do what, guys? He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. Listen to me, please. Please hear me when I say there is a spiritual battle going on for you. Now, you're saved, okay? You're saved. You've given your life to Jesus. You're saved. And so what the enemy wants to do is he wants to put you on the shelf. He wants to knock you down, and he wants to just render you ineffective for God's kingdom. That's what he wants to do. And he will use people to do it. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And, 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 and so again, guys, you, you, you wrestle against people, but, but there is a spiritual, there's a real spiritual battle going on. A real spiritual battle. Yesterday, I was doing a counseling appointment with a couple who's going to get married. And this gal loves Jesus... She loves Jesus, and she looked at me, and she said, I encountered my very first real spiritual attack this week. Really? Really? What happened? She said, I, I made a vow to the Lord that I would remain pure until the wedding. Amen. Praise God. And someone someone who's dear and close to me came out of the woodwork and said, why don't you just do it already? In God's eyes, it's okay. And she just said, wow, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect that. It was someone that I love, someone that I... And it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't her future husband. It wasn't like, hey, baby, come on, we're going to be married anyway. It was somebody else. And she goes, I really experienced that attack. It blew my mind. Man, the battle's real. Battle's real. It wants to trip us up, guys. It wants to keep us stranded in sin. That's what it wants to do. You know, Ben, what's the application? Well, here's what we need to realize. First and foremost, guys, we were born in Adam. Do you realize that? And when we were born in Adam, we were born with sin, okay? And we are internal, we have internal bondage with sin because the Bible tells us in Romans 6.20 that we were slaves of sin. So the Bible tells me that I was in bondage, that I was stranded, that I was a slave. That's how I was born. I was born in Adam. I was already going to be like Lot. I was already going to be taken. That's how I was born. I was born taken. I was born already in bondage. And because Adam sinned, we were born in Adam, and we were robbed of all the things that were good and righteous. It was Romans chapter 5, verse 12 that says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what he's saying. He's saying it right there. 
Now let's look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 14. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedalomir, king of Elam, Tidal, the king of nations, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now, guys, if you're taking note, this is the first recorded battle in, in Scripture right here, chapter 14, first recorded battle. What does he tell us? Four against five. Four against five. But I want to see, I want you to jot this down. I want you to take note. Why? Because I find something very interesting. You know why? Because if you look up the word Sodom, it actually means burning, burning. So here you have the king of burning. And if you go back to verse two and you see that Bera was the king, guess what his name means? Son of evil. Son of evil, right? So now you have the son of evil over a city called burning. Wow. And guess what Lot's doing? Lot is pitching his tent towards that city. Towards that city. Listen to the way Warren Wearsby comments on this section. I love the way Warren puts it. He says, Lot followed the path of friendship with the world. Then the love of the world. Then conformity to the world. And finally, the judgment of the judgment with the world. Lot thought that Sodom was a place of peace and protection. However, it turned out to be a place of warfare and danger. Warren goes on to say, saints are rarely are captured by the world suddenly. They enter into the place of danger by degrees. With Lot, the process began when he adopted the when he adopted Egypt as his standard and began to walk by sight instead of faith. He preferred the people of the world to his godly uncle and the houses of Sodom to the tents of God. And the result, he was captured. You go, what's he saying for us? He's saying the same thing to us, guys. He says it's a process. None of us wake up in the morning and go, oh, been walking with Jesus for 30 years. I think I'm going to go out and have an affair. I think I'm going to join the Hells Angels biker group. I'm going to just... We don't do that, but it starts very suddenly. It starts with our heart pitched toward the world, and then the next process, and the next process, and the next process. And we throw up our hands. How did we end up here? Guys, we can track back and say, this is what you did. This is what you did. That's what he's saying. That's what Lot did. And what happens to Lot? He's captured. Verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. If you go to Israel today, guys, that area is full of mountains, full. We actually had a view of the, of the Sea of Galilee this way out of our balcony when we stood there, but right behind us were huge, huge mountains. Nobody wants to see the mountains, so they all have the, the hotels facing the sea. But there's mountains, and he says some of them fled there. Notice verse 11, that they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, his goods, and departed. Now, if you have a pencil handy, you can just make an arrow right here in your Bible, because this is where we see that Lot is in Sodom already. You see other, other, he says he just kind of pitched his tent. There's, there's, there it is. There it is. And he says he got captured because he was already in there. Guys, it doesn't take long when we, when we, when we turn our hearts toward the world that we'll be in the world very quickly. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. And it says, guess what? They also took Lot. So what do we know? Lot was taken captive, right? Lot's gone. He's taken, right? <laughs> and I thought about this because anytime I see somebody taken in Scripture, I think of the movie Taken. Do you guys remember that with Liam? And uh, so I, I wonder if Abraham said, right? I wonder if Abraham, if he could say, if he would say something like this, right? That famous quote from the movie, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, Right? I can tell you, I don't have any money, although Abram had money. I don't know if he would say that. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills, skills I've acquired over a long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my nephew go now, 
that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. I don't know if Abraham said that, but isn't that pretty cool? Because that's what he's going to do, right? That's what he's going to do. And now we know, we know that Abraham didn't say that, but we do know that he goes after his nephew. Why? Because he's a slave, but here comes his rescue. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, first time Hebrews mentioned right here, okay? He dwelt by the Tiberith tree in Mamre, and the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and all the allies were with Abram. Look at verse 14. Then Abram heard that his brother was taken captive. Now, you need to understand they're, they're interchanging. They're not going to say his nephew, they're just going to say his brother, but they're still talking about law. Everybody with me? Yes? Okay, and so what does he do? He armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan, as far as Dan. So think about this. Abram has 318 trained servants. How many people did he have? That was probably a lot. That was probably a lot. So here in the invasion, okay, here in the invasion and the capture of Lot, Abram, what he got, his 318 trained men together with his allies, verse 13 tells us, he pursued and defeated the invaders in a night attack. He pursued them all the way to Dan, the future northern border of the promised land. It's about 140 miles from where he was, okay, from where he was in Hebron. And here's what I want you to jot this down, okay? I want you to jot this down. This is so important. This is going to be for future, um, for future reference. As you study the Bible, you'll go, oh, okay, Dan, that's what it's called now. It's actually called Tel Dan, but right now at the time, it, the name was Lesh, um, Leshem, Leshem, according to Joshua 19, L-E-S-H-E-M. That's what it's called now. So Abram would go up to Leshem or Laish, according to Ju- Judges chapter 18, verse 29. Okay, so when you read these, you go, where is, where is Lashem or where is Laish? That's Dan. And you can tie it together as you read the scriptures. So what does Abram do? He pursues them all night. He goes all the way to Hobah, which is another 100 miles. Here's my point. Abraham traveled 240 miles to rescue Lot. And he didn't get on a plane. And he didn't have an airstrike. Guys, he walked with his trained servants. To Santa Fe, from here, is 320 miles. It takes five hours by car. He's going to go that far. He's going to go, and he's going to go after Lot. Do you think Lot means something to him? Ben, Ben, Lot's only one person. Come on. Lot. Lot's kind of a pain. Maybe we're better off without Lot. No, 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 no. He's going to go rescue him, guys. He's going to go rescue him. But here's what I want you to see. If Abraham was willing to go 240 miles to, to, to rescue his, his nephew, Lot, think about this. Jesus came all the way from heaven to rescue us. He came as a man. He was born of a virgin. But here's what I want you to see. God loved you so much that God, that he bankrupted heaven to save us. And when we feel lonely, when we feel those times when we feel like life is just a lot, man, life is too much, you can know that God loves you because he bankrupted heaven for you. It took Abram 318 men and his allies to save Lot. God, guess what it's going to take? It will take God to come in human form to save us from our sins. You see, it wasn't enough for God to go, let me send 318 angels to save Nathalie, right? Or to save Yvonne. The angels aren't enough. God says, in order for me to save them, I need to send my son. The distance, all the way to earth. All the way to earth. In verse 15, it says, Abram divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is in the northern of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods. He also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women 
and the people. Can I just get an amen? Saved at last, right? Because not as Lot is not only saved, but but Abraham gets back his goods. He gets back the women. He gets back the people. That's what he gets. Now let's close. Okay, we're going to close our Bible study here. Next week, guys, we're going to look at more in depth. There's two kings that are going to come out to meet him as he returns back to his home. Okay, in Hebron, two kings. First king is going to be the king of Sodom. What what is he about? He's about burning, right? What's his name? Bera, right? What does he mean? Son of evil. That's the first king that's going to come out. Very interesting. Very interesting. Because the second thing that comes out is a fellow by the name of Melchizedek. And the Bible says that not only is he a king, but he's a priest. And we'll get into that so much more so deep, so deep next week. You're going to see, wow. Here's why. Let me give you a preview. Because you could either be a king or you could be a priest, but you can be both. So who was he? Dun, dun, dun. You have to find out next week. Don't miss. Don't miss. Bira, who is he? He's evil, son of evil, right? King of burning. Hmm. Melchizedek, king and priest of Salem, otherwise known as Jerusalem. Hmm. Let me summarize real quick. Lot, he's in Sodom, gets captured. He's getting taken. He's stranded. He's in bondage. He's in prison. He's a POW. He's going up north. Abraham takes his men. He goes up. And we raid by night. Takes him back. Amen. Amen. That's how I feel. My Jesus said, there's Ben. There's Ben. He's stranded in sin. Stranded in sin. He can't get out. He can't find his way to heaven. Jesus, yes, Lord, go and save Ben. Go and save Ben. Although he didn't do it by night, he did it very publicly. We talked about that on Sunday when he was stretched out on the cross. And he said, it is finished. I don't have time because I want to spend time in communion. I want to spend time in worship. But jot this down. I want you to look it up because because in 1976, there was an actual modern-day rescue, if you recall. It was called Operation Entebbe, Operation Entebbe, otherwise known as Operation Thunderbolt. Google that. See that? It's when the Israeli forces came in, and they saved, and they rescued, guys, a hijacked airplane. Here's the, here's the crux of the story. There was 248 passengers. They let, they let all the non-Israelis go, and they kept the Jewish people as hostages. Ninety-four Israeli passengers in Israel. The IDF comes in and rescues them. It's amazing. One of the commanders that got killed was Lieutenant Yonatan Netanyahu. And he was the older brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, who is the prime minister of Israel now. It was real. They did that. But as we get ready to partake in communion, guys, here's what I want you to remember. It's a celebration because you have been redeemed. You've been rescued. You were Lot. And God came down and said, I got you. I got you. I saved you. You're mine. You're mine. So as we spend the next 15 minutes, guys, in prayer and in worship, think about that. Think about that. Lord, you rescued me? I wonder if Lot thought, why would you rescue me? Came a, you came 240 miles, and it was my bad. It was my bad. I shouldn't have been that. Well, we're going to see Lot end up back in Sodom. But right now, he's rescued. He's rescued. And I know it's the gospel. I know it's the gospel. Do you guys see the gospel in that? Do you see the good news? Do you see how he rescued us? He's been showing us, guys, for years and years through his word. 
man needs redemption. So as we worship tonight, guys, and we get ready to partake in communion, let me just remind you, communion is open to anyone who's a believer. We have open communion, and what I mean by that is there's, there's churches who say, well, you can't take communion unless you're a member of our church. We believe that you, if you're a member of the family of God, you can take communion. And so what I want you to do is prepare your heart. Prepare your heart. Because we've been in the world, and we've, we've just come in with sin, and we've come in with junk on our feet, and, and now's the time as we relate in worship that, that we just confess that to the Lord. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm rescued. I love you, and just praise Him. And when you're ready, you just come on up. You can spend time in the Lord. This is the time, guys, where you can, you can spend anywhere in the sanctuary, anywhere you want. You can come up to the altar. You can go behind. You can pray. You can cry. This is between you and the Lord. This is your time. But I want you to remember it's a celebration. It's a celebration because this represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which paid for me, and it paid for you. How was it paid for? He's given his life. The Bible says that we're not supposed to eat this in an unworthy manner. And an unworthy manner says that, number one, we haven't given our hearts to Jesus. We haven't, we haven't truly given our lives to God, so don't take it. Or if you've come in here and you've got unconfessed sin or bitterness towards somebody, don't take it. But if it's just something you go, Lord, just forgive me. I've, man, I've had a bad day. I'm just a mess up. I just... And just confess that and you can come and God receives you. He receives you with his arms open wide. Father, thank you for tonight. We worship you now. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you, or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.